0: In Romans 1, we have just started the book. And since this is, uh, since we're talking about salvation and the atonement, there's no more important book to study than Romans.
1: Can I ask that question from last week? Sure. You were saying that uh, Paul never spoke about individual sin. Could you elaborate on that a little bit?
0: You know, I don't remember that comment, unfortunately. (laughs) Maybe I did say that. When he talks about sin, he talks about the whole world is sinful. Right. He doesn't point fingers, usually. In in some of his epistles he does. You know, he handed, who was it, Demetrius or somebody over, or Demas. Maybe well, I meant in it. Romans. In Romans. Yeah. No, you know, it, we're going to come to chapter 2 and chapter 3. I think it's actually in chapter 3. He talks about in fact, in chapter two and th- chapters two and three, he quotes uh, from the Psalms. And there is no one who is righteous, no not even one. There's no one who has understanding. And it's interesting that he would pick something like that, uh, which is more of a wisdom tradition, when you do, you need understanding. But I'm I'm finding more and more as I study the Bible that sin has everything to do with lack of understanding that if we really understood things the way they really are we, wouldn't, we would absolutely abhor sin and we wouldn't want anything to do with it but in terms of the universality, I, I think it's the universality I was emphasizing rather than uh, individuality that doesn't mean is it in Romans where he says everyone is responsible for their own sins in other words everyone stands before the judgment seat of God and accountable to God is, but again, he's including everybody in that. So, last week we did verses 1 to 6. As you know, we move very slowly in this class. And it appears to me that in the, these verse verses, he outlines his most important concern. He elaborates the gospel, he gives it point by point, but then he talks about faith. Now, I'm going to back up and cover something that I didn't cover last week that I probably should have, because we talk extensively about faith and what it means. Faith can be translated faithfulness. If you take the Hebrew word behind the Greek word. Keep in mind, Paul is writing in Greek. Though so it's possible that he had a manuensis too, and uh, who was doing the writing in Greek, and and whether Paul was actually talking in Hebrew is is hard to know. But it's likely he was he was writing in Greek in his head, but at the same time he also was writing in Hebrew. He had the Hebrew vocabulary in inside his mind as he did this, and so it's possible that that faith is faithfulness. The only trouble I have with translating it that, and by the way, I believe N.T. Wright, uh, who's a one of the most prominent New Testament scholars in the world, I believe has started translating, has started uh, emphasizing the faithfulness aspect of this word. The problem I have with that is that a synonym of faithfulness for that Old Testament word faith faith, is. uh, trustworthiness. We're not trustworthy, are we? So those who live by their trustworthiness, that's not something we can engender, is it? Of course, we can't engender faith either. But it it seems to me that we're headed towards works now as a means of salvation rather than grace through faith. It makes more sense that it is faith, that it is trust, that that, grace, that we receive grace because we have come to trust God. We can't, we can't, it's not a matter of God won't give us grace because we don't trust Him. It's a matter that God gives us grace and we can only receive it if we trust Him enough to do so. Uh, so I prefer the word trust to the word faithfulness. For the, for reasons that it fits, it seems to make more sense in context of Paul, who is very death on works, on anything that we have to claim, uh, of our own. And I suppose you could argue that while well, faithfulness is engendered by God, just like faith, so what's the problem? Maybe it's my work. <laughs> but I, I just sense that trust is what Paul is after. And it makes sense because in order to be trustworthy, we have to have trust, the ability to trust other people, and to trust, most importantly, to trust God. So we're going to, going to talk about this, and, and I'd like to begin with just a little historical overview. Last week, we talked about the covenants behind this. And I, I took us on a journey of the text and how it has to do with the journey of trust to not trust to cutting the covenant. And and in, in Abraham's covenant, he first trusts God in verse 6 of chapter 15. And then he wavers, falters, as I think one of my students put it last week. So God cuts a covenant with him, a very strange kind of covenant with animals and body parts and so on. And, and then uh, Abraham falters again, and this time you have Ishmael. And so he has another cutting that follows that, and that cutting is circumcision. So he, it has to get really personal then. And then he falters again and keeps lying about his wife Sarah. And so he has a final cutting, which he never actually consummates. And that is the binding of Isaac. So, the covenant of works, where you have to do something to create that covenant, you have to do an action, you have to do something painful, that covenant is the result of a lack of trust. And God had to just kind of stoop lower and lower and lower to to meet us where we were and finally... It almost seems like the covenant of faith is kind of lost sight of and Paul's goal in Romans and in Galatians will be to bring that into sharp focus uh, and say, no, the original covenant was the covenant of trust. So that's where we were last week. I'd like to go back even further than that today. Originally, the kind of relationship God wanted with us in the garden was the one of trust. And there came an intruder into the garden who lied to us about God and broke our trust. We lost our happy home, but most, worst of all, we lost our face-to-face communication with God because we couldn't trust Him. It wasn't safe. This, this is going to sound arbitrary, but it's not. It wasn't safe to be in God's presence and not trust Him because god is God is so loving that to be in his presence and not trust him is does just receive very severe consequences, so God removes himself, removes them from the garden, and thereon begins the whole human community who is trying to learn what to do when we can't trust one another. And uh, the first thing that seems to happen is just wholesale violence. You you get violent to me and I'll get violent back to you and, and on and on. And eventually, on the plains of Shinar, a group of people, uh, Sumerians first, um, Babylonians next, a group of people began to develop ways and means to lessen the violence and to try to create ways to trust. We call that law. Now, law didn't begin as law. It began as uh, courts, community courts, where you brought your grievance against someone to the court and the elders made decisions. And those decisions became somewhat law. These courts originally functioned as kind of counselors. (laughs) It's kind of like going to therapy. Uh, You go to to your counselor and you get advice on how to treat somebody they became conciliators. But as time moved on and you had increasing bulks of power, because in the same setting, uh, kingship was invented, which came about through many different, for many different reasons. Uh, <clears throat> and the more power you had concent- concentrated in, in a few people, the more the courts became about finding guilt and proving the guilt of someone. Until finally, in the Neo-Babylonian period, it was all about the verdict. And you had nothing of this uh, trying to conciliate people. No, it was like, you're wrong. You have to compensate. End of story. So the whole legal process began innocuously enough, but winds up being the result of not being able to trust Which is why Paul is embarking on a journey. Paul seems to be aware that to have a genuine relationship with someone, you can't just lay down the law. I ask my students sometimes what the difference is between their relationship with the judge in the courthouse and their relationship with their roommate. (laughs) It's like, wow they they recognize immediately we they, i said do you go out to eat with uh, your judge do you uh, hang out with him and, and do golf or bowling or something like that no they don't uh, the judge is is like out here and barred from us in fact he's barred very literally by the architecture of a courtroom and he you don't get you don't get close to a judge unless you grew up with him and he was your brother or something or she was your sister Uh, so what has happened is and and I think Paul understands this is that we have lost our ability to trust and we have replaced that ability with artificial contrived relationships that are bound about legal matters that was especially true of the ancient Near East and in Paul's day Everything, every relationship was governed by legal constraints. So when we talk about trust, we're not talking about a legal matter. Faith is not part of law. Law makes it possible for us to have some measure of trust. But that trust is very fragile. And it can't hold without evidence of trustworthiness. So... Let's begin with verse 8. I'm I'm skipping verse 7 because uh, I think we actually read that last week. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his Son, is my witness that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayers asking that by God's will I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you, for I am longing to see you so that I might share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, or rather that we might mutually be encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I might reap some harvest among you, as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We could ask all kinds of questions about this. Uh, who are the people he's writing to in Rome? Are they Jews? Or are they Gentiles? Or are they both?
1: Why did you mention that the... Uh Nero had asked the Jews to come back to Rome, so it's both, but they were fighting the two groups, the local Christians and the Jewish Christians. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, my understanding has always been that he's, he's writing to both Jews and, and Gentiles. And that's one of the reasons why I think the book of Romans, more than any other epistle, has a, a sort of a duality to it. Uh, he first addresses the Jews, and then he seems to address the Gentiles. What can we glean from here that might help us with the rest of the book? He's uh he's still talking about the gospel. The God for God whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his son that's verse 9. Is my witness that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayer. So Paul Paul's uppermost concern is the gospel, the good news. He wants to see them. Uh look at verse 12, or rather so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul is not setting himself up on a pedestal. He wants to put himself down on their level and say we're all one in Christ. We all have this mutual ability to benefit one another. And then he talks about how he longed to come. What does he mean by verse 14? I am a debtor. Both to the Greeks, to the barbarians, and both to the wise and to the foolish. What does he mean by, I am a debtor?
2: This translation says, I am under obligation.
0: Yeah, if you're indebted to somebody, you're certainly under obligation to pay them, aren't you? What What does he mean by being under obligation or being indebted? How is he indebted? What have they done for him that he's indebted to them? I mean, that's our usual way of using this word.
1: In the humanistic psychology, you're not a debtor to other people. But in our philosophy, you are a debtor. We're all relation to each other, and we're all responsible. Okay. The good, the bad, the ugly.
0: Okay. Kim, did you have your hand? I was thinking more that he was indebted to, to God to give to both the Greek and the and uh, the Hebrew and the wise and the foolish. The, the mission that he was on was he was indebted by his allegiance to, to God to the other people, to give them. And you wonder why he doesn't say it that way. He just says directly, I'm indebted to... I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Well, both to the wise and to the foolish. No, I'm, I'm just I'm just wondering why he doesn't. I think I think you're right. I think he's indebted. Isn't isn't part of his indebtedness um, that he was kind of knocked off his horse and
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> and had a really major dramatic conversion, and that made him feel indebted. And maybe indebted is just too... We're pressing this word a little too strongly. I mean, you, you know how we use words metaphorically, uh, especially verbs, that uh, we don't mean to their full strength. So maybe by indebted, he's trying to say, he doesn't have a better word for it. You know, I'm, I'm obligated by reason of knowing the truth to tell it to others. Now... For me, that doesn't work quite that way. Yes, Angela? It just struck me when I, we just read it fast that, okay, we can learn from anyone. Oh. <clears throat> to mine it was like, I'm learning from the Greeks, I'm learning from the barbarian, the wise, and the unwise. Hmm. Because it just said the experience before that we are to lift one another up and, you know. So... This is reminds me of global community development. And global community development. We we teach that we don't go overseas to other countries to fix them. If we go in with that fix it mentality, we botch everything. We come over there to partner with, to sit down under the mango tree as, as one person has put it, and and talk of okay, so what are you doing that's working? How can we help help you do that better? Or uh, what are you? What would you like to do? What's your dream for the, your community? And and then and, and it may be something that we just think is is just not appropriate. Um, one ADRA worker went down to Brazil along the Amazon River. He went to a village that had no clean water, and he was he got the community together and said, let's give you clean water. We can do that. And the village said, no, 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 we don't want clean water. And said, well, what do you want? We want lights for our volleyball field. <laughs> volleyball court. What? So we can play at night when it's dark. And he was about to argue with them at length, and then he thought, you know, we can do both. Let's do the volleyball lights. And then they were happy to have clean water. But this is partnering with as opposed to imposing on. I like that. I, I like that a lot for what Paul is saying. I, I can learn from the barbarians and the Greek, and I have. I'm, so I'm indebted to that. Uh, and maybe that's a carryover from his that we might be mutually, mutually encourage one another. So he's easing into the gospel as not, I've come to tell you the good news. Yes, he says that. But it's the I'm, I am indebted to you. you know, I have this wonderful news, and you've done so much for me. So let me do this for you. Okay. Now we're starting to come to the heart of what Paul's going to be talking about. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation, to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. This has a lot in it. When I did my master's thesis, a good part of it was spent just on these verses. So why is the gospel the power of God? What does that mean?
1: Well,
0: he's sharing his power by communicating. I think the way we—I think in the the legal setting that has often been placed on uh, Paul—that we have we have looked at this as the power of God in that it enabled God to save us. God couldn't save us without the gospel, and there's a truth to that, but not in the sense that it's meant. It's meant that you know, without appeasing the wrath of God, God could not forgive us. That's the way it's usually understood how it's the power. But the way you're suggesting is that unless we hear the gospel, unless God has not only acted, but this action is proclaimed, we can't be saved. So the gospel itself, the good news, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has trust. So to everyone who trusts, That gospel has power. And and what we determine that gospel is, what its content is, has a tremendous weight in terms of how that works. How does trusting God enable us to receive this powerful gospel that's going to do things like save us? Well, we can't answer that question on this verse, so we're going to have to move on. That's one of the things in Romans you always have to move on to get the answer. <laughs> Paul is extremely complicated. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. Now here's another very disputed term that we're going to have to look at. And I've been spending a considerable time with it for the past three to five years. I went through Plato looking at this term. I went through, uh, I didn't go through Aristotle. Somehow I didn't think he would be very helpful (laughs) to Paul. But I went through uh, Josephus and Philo and Herodotus and and a number of Greek authors who were contemporaries of Paul. And I I looked at this word because sometimes it is rendered in... I think the NIV, I don't know if it still does this. I think it's actually changed it. But when it, the NIV first came out, it had righteousness here. But over in um, chapter 3, well, my own version, the NRSV, is a good example of this. So um, it says that for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. That is, the, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it's righteousness. But if you look over at chapter 3, verse 5 but if our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God what shall we say that God is unjust to inflict wrath on us it's the same word in the Greek why does the translator decide it's righteousness in one place and justice in another could he not say in verse 17 for in it the justice of God is revealed and what does the justice of God mean And depending on what you bring to that term, you will interpret one way or another. This term is extremely key. So, I'll unpack a little bit of it now, and more of it later. In Plato, which is far removed from Paul, way, way before Paul. And we're talking about the righteousness of God, what it means. Because in Romans three, the same word is translated as justice. So, is it righteousness of God or justice of God? So, in Plato, which doesn't really have much bearing on this book, because it's, he's far, so far removed back from Paul, and, and the word and words change over the um, centuries. In Plato, the word for righteousness is decidedly moral. It is a term of virtue. So it would be best translated righteousness. So you move to, to Josephus, and in Josephus it's primarily moral and virtue. In Herodotus, primarily moral and virtue. That leaves us only with Philo left. And in Philo, I actually found a definition, I'm going to try to bring it uh, next week, but I I actually found a definition of it that ties the virtue aspect of it to a legal aspect. Philo takes that word and lets it bridge both the legal and the moral. Now, you need to know um, that this word, and I'm going to have to say it in Greek even though it means nothing, Uh, to most non-Greek readers. This word is dikaiosune. The D-I-K, dik, in the beginning of the word, is its root. So all words that begin D-I-K in Greek are related. And most of those words, the vast majority of those words, are legal terms. There's a term for judge. Uh, There's a term for for penal justice or punishment, decay. And interestingly, decay is used only three times in the New, Te- the New Testament. And two of those times, it's connected to the final destruction of the wicked. One of those times, is it's found in Acts, and that's very revealing because it's very true to, the, I think, the core meaning of the term. And that's, um, if we look back at Acts 26, Twenty-six, I think it is, or twenty-seven. It might even be twenty-eight. Yes, it is twenty-eight. So they've reached, uh... (laughs) They got got shipwrecked, right? And then they finally reached this little island called Malta. The natives uh, showed them unusual kindness, and it was raining, it was cold, so they kindled a fire and said, come all, everybody, come around the fire. So they come around the fire to get warm. After all, they're wet, soaking wet (laughs) after having to swim. Paul had gathered a bundle of brushwood and was putting it on the fire when a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man must be a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. What kind of justice is that? Legal. It's legal. It's retributive justice. Getting back. Justice isn't going to take this. You, You escaped my clutches, so here you are. Here's a snake. It will kill you. That's decay. Now if Paul meant strictly legal justice when he talks about the righteousness of God and he especially meant a penal kind of justice he would have used decay that would have been the best term but he uses righteousness, moral, virtuous justice now Philo says that well it is is justice it's the kind of justice that makes fair decisions either for punishment or for exoneration. Makes fair decisions. So I prefer the term righteousness, and I think Paul would agree with that if he had known English, because I think it never loses its moral connotations. And the question is, what is right? What is What is the righteousness? Now, the usual Hebrew word that it translates is tzedakah, which means, or sedak, which means righteousness in in uh, Hebrew. But the same term is used by the Septuagint, that is, the Greek translation, to translate words like truth, words like trust, words like um, kindness, like like the Hebrew word kesed, which it translates several times. The word kesed, as near as I can tell from having studied it, means going beyond what is legally required to do the kind, generous thing. So this word dikayasune in Hebrew understanding has a lot more to do with a, a more of a moral stance you take toward people, where you do the right thing in the right situation, and sometimes that means doing kesed, uh the kind thing. And that sometimes that means doing the truthful and honest thing, uh, but you're always doing what is right in a particular situation. So, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And of course, we don't know what He's talking about at this point. Um, how is the gospel, How does the gospel reveal the righteousness of God? Uh, we're going to unpack that when we come to Romans 3. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. What does that mean? Now, one way to translate that is to fall back on the meaning of faithfulness that is also a part of this word. And say it is, for, it is through faithfulness for faith. In other words, I'm going to use different words now. Instead of faithfulness, I'm going to use trustworthiness. And instead of faith, I'm going to use trust. It is, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed through trustworthiness. For trust. Does that make sense? In other words, something had to be established of God's trustworthiness in order for us to trust him. And, and keep in mind, as I said last week, the word "trust" is actually in the causative form in the Hebrew, so that it, trust is caused by something. Or, it, what, or the mechanism that is trust is caused, and that mechanism is the trust it's built on trustworthiness. And that's why this, the same word can mean trustworthiness or it can mean trust. I mean faithfulness or it can mean faith. So that's how I would like to translate this. uh, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through trustworthiness leading to trust. And I I know I have to add some words that aren't in the Hebrew, but I think that that's the intent of the the preposition four. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by trust. Or you could translate the one who is righteous will live in trust. Where is Paul quoting that? Habakkuk, Habakkuk, Habakkuk two. Is it Habakkuk two four? I two, think. Four. Yeah. And what's the context there in Habakkuk? Believe it or not, the context is the same as the context in Paul in Romans three. I used to think that Paul was kind of just taking that out of context, and I I winked at it because. Everybody did that, it seemed like, in Paul's day, so why not? But if you look at the problem that Habakkuk faces, Habakkuk is very troubled about all the injustices that are going on in Jerusalem, and he expects God to punish his people. So he complains to God, when are you going to do something about this mess? Look at all that's being done unjustly. And God says, well, you're going to be surprised at what I do. I'm going to bring up the Babylonians. And they're going to sack the city and uh, take you captive. And Habakkuk goes, what? You're going to bring someone worse than we are to punish us? It sounds so kind of arbitrary, legal, retributive, all of that. But that's where Habakkuk is in his mind. That's also where Paul's readers are. That's also where a group of people were this summer. When I made, a, made presentations at uh, Orlando, Florida, they did not like my gospel. I want some retribution. There's no, you have a lovey-dovey God, and, and there's no retribution here. And I want those people to get whacked. So I let them know there was retribution. <laughs> but I used different terms, I called it natural consequences, and that those natural consequences will be terrible. But... I could tell it didn't quite satisfy. But that's that's where these readers are coming This is where Habakkuk is coming from. This is where Paul's readers are coming from. So this is the context in which Habakkuk finds himself. He wants God to do something now, but not that way. Uh, Because those people need whacking too. (laughs) Those people are unjust too. Why should you bring them up against us? Now of course, understand that everybody in the whole Bible see God as responsible for doing everything. So they don't have a, a distinction between cause and effect and, and God doing it. So that's why the wording. So God says to Habakkuk, oh, oh, actually Habakkuk makes his great complaint against God's justice, <laughs> his kind of justice, and he goes up and to a watchtower and he says okay God I'm going to wait and see what you're going to do what are you going to answer my prayer and the answer comes that I'm going to give you something to write and write it on this tablet write it so that he who runs can read it and, and have some patience because those who are righteous live in trust can you trust me That's the, God's answer to our crying need for retributive justice. Um, can you trust me? Am I trustworthy? That's the core of the problem Paul is going to try to resolve. That's what he sees underlying the whole human sin problem is this problem <coughs> of trust and trustworthiness. Can we trust God? Is he trustworthy? Uh, and what about his justice? What is the nature of his justice? So it's not surprising, given that background of Habakkuk, and given the background Philo brings to the verb, and by the way, I have come to the conclusion, a little bit of, I've read of Philo, that Paul is familiar with Philo. Philo is a contemporary. He died in AD 50, and Paul, of course, is in his prime in AD 50. And so I think that when he, Paul spent some years in Saudi Arabia, which is what we understand he did, he spent, what was it, 3 years or was it 4? I think 4, so I remember. Anyway, he spent a number of years in Saudi Arabia. We think he was studying during that time, trying to orient him reorient himself because he's had this major cataclysmic event in his life and he has to make sense of it. And so he's searching the scriptures. Well, Saudi Arabia isn't too far from where Philo of Alexandria is. And he probably had access to his writings if he didn't have access to Alexandria himself. So I I see this as the background of Paul, because it comes from Philo, it also comes from Habakkuk. And it's not surprising then, if, if Paul is concerned about establishing the righteousness of God, that he would then deal with the wrath of God. And that's next. For the, righteous, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen to the things he has made. So they are without excuse. You notice where Paul puts this. He's not talking so much about God's angry and he's going to whack you. Mm-hmm. He's talking about our culpability and that we are without excuse. We've suppressed the truth. We knew what was right. We knew what, what, what we could have known about God is available to us. And we refused to, to do, deal with it, to refuse to believe it. So we are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Sounds like he's only talking about idolaters here, doesn't it? Not the rest of us. Well, he's going to go on to say, you know, what happened back in the age of idols is still happening today in, in a different way. And that we are reaping the consequences, actually, of generations of idol worship. But doesn't
3: isn't it all a commandment one issue anyway? I mean, whether it's physical idolatry yeah. or, or... It is. tangible idolatry, you know, I mean, the self.
0: And And this is and, crucial, this is crucial to... Paul's concern for God's righteousness, because if we misunderstand God's righteousness, we're an idolater right off the bat. Right. Um, so uh, So they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds of four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, and now we come to the wrath of God as revealed. This is how it's revealed. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions, or women exchanged natural intercourse for an unnatural, in the same way also the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another, Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they do not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them.
3: One time or another, I think all of us have been guilty of probably one of those. At
0: least, at least. least. I mean,
3: not more for me, but anyway, but, yeah, it's humbling.
0: Yeah, does Paul leave anybody out? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so.
1: In the King James, he also added debate.
0: Debate? Yeah, well, a lot of us are good at that. I want to go back to this word, revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. The word is apocalyptitai, which is related to the apocalypse, the revelation. It means to uncover, disclose, or reveal. It is a definitive word. That is, it is what follows is going to define the term. So when it says the wrath of God is revealed, Paul says, I'm going to define how it acts, how it behaves. And three times. He has.
1: Rather than it's God. He gave them up. God doing things.
0: Right. He yeah, gives God's them up. Mean,
1: he's cruel and, that, and I think yeah. that's the way people are it that some way God is really yeah. pissed off.
0: But no, Paul says he gave them up. Because, because they did this. He had to allow them to receive the results.
1: But that's the wrath.
0: But that's Allowing the wrath, it to right?
3: And, and that's really all the wrath is when we think about hell or mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the only people that aren't going to be in heaven are people that God knows would not be happy there and would make other people miserable and turn heaven into a hell. Okay. So, so you know, it's not. I mean, because God created us never with the intention of destroying us, and then even when we boo boo made a boo boo. He still came up with a plan to save us which required sacrificing his own son who created us all. So that's just an amazing feat on his part. So, you know, this is less about punishment. Like, hey, we, we can't let people come here that would never be happy here. I, I think, I, I, to me, that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. So Yeah. So so the
1: translation so mm-hmm. of wrath is exposing, uh, defining what... Naturally happens mm-hmm. as opposed more mm-hmm. action oriented God that's trying to hurt you mm-hmm. or punish you right and I don't know you know I think I, I, think I know from a series I've been watching about the development of the Roman Church and then down through the different uh, Roman bishops and so forth, where they developed the concepts away from the Bible mm-hmm. um, yeah. But wrath in our own Christian experience does often take us God's doing it.
0: Yeah. We we often we assume that God's angry, and in his anger, he's going to whack right. us.
2: And he changed. Yeah. So what do you say to, to people me. that say, well, well, this is God's passive wrath, but you know, in the end, he's active wrath, and he's going to do this too.
0: I would ask them to give me a text yeah. in the New Testament that get, talks about active wrath. Because... The wrath of God is ended with the plagues. And the plagues are poured out. That means they're let go. God stops restraining. So I see everything in the Bible uh, lining up to this. And besides, there's no other place in the Bible where wrath is defined. And when you have a definition, you want to stick that to that definition. That's the key that unlocks all the other places where God's wrath is mentioned. And, and more than that, God's, uh, if, let me use my canonical critical approach to this. Genesis does not talk about God's wrath once. And that's the book of beginnings. That's, that represents God's ideal plan, ideal will, um, as much as possible. I mean, there's still some adaptation in there. But in terms of wrath, that represents his ideal plan. The first time canonically that wrath is mentioned is in Exodus 4. When Moses runs out of arguments to use and excuses to use for not going to Egypt, God finally gets, he says, God send someone else. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I'm not going. And God says, gets angry. It says the wrath of God was kindled against Moses. And he said, all right, I'll send Aaron, your brother. Okay, you can have your way. And, and and I don't I, I don't think God said it in an exasperated voice like I used but but uh, he gave Moses what he wanted and I think that that is is precisely the definition of God's wrath so uh, there's there's lots of evidence for this there's one more piece of evidence I don't know if we have this here I'm afraid not our poor library needs some help. The Septuagint is where Paul gets his definition of divine mouth. If his his rabbinic readers of the text would pick up on that, I think almost immediately. Because, uh, let me tell you, at least today, Jewish rabbis know Torah, the prophets, and the writings backwards and forwards and they know the Septuagint backwards and forwards in the Septuagint reading of Isaiah 53 three times (coughs) the suffering servant is given up using the same Greek word which is paradidomi three times he's given up and that is lying behind the text of Paul and pretty soon he's going to refer to it if we can look ahead and peek on the future, chapter 4, verse 25, uh, starting with verse 24, it will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses, and was raised for our justification. Handed over, he was given up. Same word. So Paul is, is thinking Isaiah 53 in the back of his head as he's crafting this, And he's defining wrath the way it should be defined in terms of the suffering servant. So, what he's preparing the reader for is an exhibition of divine anger as revealed in the death of Jesus. And this this is where he's headed, and he'll reach it in chapter 3. Any questions or comments? I think this is a good place to stop. But I I just wanted to know if there was any questions or comments. We have about three minutes.
3: Well, if that's wrath, um, I wouldn't do something like that with my child on my best day. You know, that's an amazing, amazing thing that God did. Mm -hmm.
0: If you're going to encourage trust and solve the problem of God's trustworthiness, what has to be revealed? To prove that God is trustworthy. His wrath. Isn't isn't knowing what His wrath is the means of wanting to trust? I think in my own conversion experience, uh, I was converted at the foot of the cross because I realized a God who would go to such lengths to win me back would not hurt me in the least. and And so I came to trust Him. But <clears throat> my mind soon found a problem, and that was God whacking people. (laughs) Especially the wicked at the end. I was like, love would not kill them. Love would just not do that. If God is 100% love, which I had come to believe, he will not destroy the wicked at the end. And I thought, well, I'll never find that in the Bible, and especially not in Ellen White. I was reading Desire of Ages through at the time. And about a few weeks later I came to the chapter it is finished. And I remember reading page seven sixty three and she's describing in biblical terms the the fire consuming the wicked and, and so on. And I'm I'm reading this along and going and then I, I have to turn the page and I'm like, Okay, she's gonna really show how God's whacking them. Turn the page. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God, and I'm <laughs> <laughs> I remember leaping into the air from my bed and going, It's true, it's really true <laughs> after I read that paragraph. And that settled my trust in God. Because the crux of what went wrong was in that fatal lie, you shall not surely die. Now what? God's gonna God's just gonna let you live forever in sin and wallow in your in your horrors that you do to one another and then you blame him for it because he's the one causing it? Or are you going to come to realize the nature of who God is? So it seems that this lie perpetuated itself. And it grew arms and legs of hell, of torture, of God being sadistic and cruel. And we think we need that in order to to walk straight. But it's not the way it works. That's what Paul is going to try to tell us. This is not the right way home. The right way home is to trust. Mm-hmm. You can't trust if you're, if you're believing that lie, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that you shall surely die, you shall not surely die. And I see Paul, Philo does this in his, his work. He unpacks Genesis 1-3 to extensively. And I see Paul doing the same thing. He's, he's really talking about Genesis 1 and 3, and we're going to see that even more as we move into chapter 3. But let's uh, close for today. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Father, we, we thank you for Romans and for what it teaches us about you. We thank you that you have helped us to find the ways and means of interpreting Paul by looking at his sources and how he is using them. We thank you that you are not a God who is angry and ready to devour us, but a God who wants to win us to trust, a God who grieves as he has to let us go if we so choose to reject him. We thank you that you are this way. We ask that we will always trust you because you are certainly worthy of our confidence. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for coming.
2: It's
0: a little more fun than, than listening from afar, huh? <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's
2: uh, fun to listen to somebody that has uh, what I think is more an accurate grasp of what the Word is saying. And uh, my question goes, um, how did our church get to be so uh, into the legal aspect of things instead of what the trust is?
0: I'm not sure we ever grasped the trust. I I have to look at our history and think that we started on a legal note. We were, all the churches were in a legal mode. And so, God, that's why God started with this problem of the cleansing of the sanctuary and and all of that, because He had to meet us where we were. And and as soon as possible, He removed our fear of an ever burning hell. Take that out. As soon as possible, he tried to enlarge our understanding of rest and the concept of one day a week in celebration of creation and who we are in the image of God. As soon as possible, he kept moving us gently along. He, he gave us the Laodicean message in the 1850s, and we got it and then lost it. And then he tried again in 1888 to give us the message of of righteousness by faith and grace and and all this trust and i think that jones and wagner's came very close to where we are in their understanding but uh they kind of lost it and veered away and and the church never fully got it and then uh we turned to power we got big enough to have power and and that and and by the 1950s, we were more concerned about our reputation and ourselves than we were about anybody else. If that's what the legal model does. It's it a selfish way of dealing with the whole universe. So uh, we we got into this mode of, of defending ourselves against the Christians who thought we weren't Christ-like because we didn't believe in the forensic model. And so off we went to the forensic model in the 1950s. So unfortunately, that's our journey, and those of us who have tried to talk about reality in real terms, trust and trustworthiness and relationships, uh, are always going up against the current, Mm -hmm. always.
2: On the way out here on the plane, because we've been struggling with fellow church members and whatever, and I, I read a quote by Churchill. And he said, success is going from failure to failure without losing your enthusiasm.
0: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think that's what we need. (laughs) Our enthusiasm. But you know, the the gospel is so rich and so beautiful and so uh, gripping of my life. I mean, I feel a debtor to it, not because I feel, oh, I'm obligated. I I don't feel an obligation. I feel... uh, I have to share this. The most cruel thing you could do is shut me up and put me in a cage and not let me share. <laughs> you know? So regardless of the heat, I have to share.
2: Hold on. I was reading um, Acts 10-12 this morning and, you know, talking about how Paul's being thrown in prison and whatever and how the uh, fellow Jewish believers were having trouble with him bringing in a different understanding or bringing in the Gentiles. And, uh, I'm I'm going, I'm seeing this happen today. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. You know,
2: when you try and get a different understanding, um, it's like we don't want you as a member in our church, you know.
0: Yeah.
2: And I, I guess the Lord has to send the Holy Spirit to, you know, encourage us all and <laughs> increase our understanding that yeah. we may have had but a you different
0: know, view. You know, I think back to my experience this summer in Florida. I honestly think there are people in very strongly l- persuaded legal matters that are that at some time will open up
2: to I the hope truth so. and
0: and um i I think how long it took my parents uh, when I got this view, I was the only one in my family with it, and uh, my parents didn't know w- what happened to her <laughs> <laughs> suddenly she's just so excited about God. I talked about him morning, noon, and evening and uh they, they wish they had their unexcited, uh, stable-minded <laughs> pathfinder back, who just did everything right and, and lined up with everything. I, I, I finally came to despair that they would ever get it. Nine years later, I was like, you know, this is my view. It's always going to be my view. It's not going to be my parents' view. And then I wrote a book, uh, my second book that I published at Pacific Press. It's just recently gotten. Reprinted under the original title I had and God cried out why this suffering I wrote the book and it was a story of God looking at the great controversy through God's eyes and I brought the manuscript home when I visited my parents and I asked if I could read it to them and I watched my dad get converted right before my eyes just be melted <laughs> I could just see it and my mother called me uh, some weeks later and said you should see your dad He's sharing this view everywhere with everybody at church, and boy did he get in trouble. <laughs> we don't start out by being diplomatic and um, it's wise as serpents and harmless as dove. We learn that by hard knocks. <laughs> we tend to be rather insistent on on this is the truth. But I think of how long they took and I try to be patient with those who, who struggle. They have a harder battle than I had. I never accepted the, the legal model. It, it somehow never made sense to me. And I struggled with it. But um, those who did have, have a harder road to hope. So, well,
3: that's the danger. If we if we want our spirituality branded, you know, like in a certain way and to look a certain shape or whatever, one of the best gifts we can give our kids, this includes the kids here at this college, is is to trust them and to allow them with the Holy Spirit influencing them to find their own way and you know what sometimes we learn from that yeah. way and it enriches our own right you know whatever but like trying to get them to conform to our path and so forth that's a foolish notion because then yeah. it's disingenuous right it's not there yeah law. the
0: most we can do is offer it mm-hmm. and and say you know if you disagree with me on a test that's fine if you know and allow latitude for what answers they give the most we can do is offer this it, we Earth can't compel righteousness. Yeah. Yeah.
3: we want them
0: to be like that Angela? you said your book is being through, Pete, through Pacific Press again it's reprinted all three of my books are reprinted now so yeah we need to let go well, what was the title? and God cried out why the suffering